Well, hello and welcome to another Around the Table from Christian Concern, where we talk about some of the key issues affecting the life of our nation. Well, we're getting to the end of the year now, and we're going to have a special Christmas episode for you next week. So be sure to tune in for that on Friday next week. Uh, but I'm excited about today and this crucial question we're asking about Christianity in the UK. As always, if you're watching live, we love to see your thoughts and questions in the comments. Uh, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, we'll try and uh, try and get to those questions, show those comments. So we really like to see uh, see what you're thinking about these things. Of course, if you're listening to the podcast or on delay, you're also very welcome. So some early results for the 2021 census of England and Wales came in recently, saying for the first time that under half the population, 46%, identifies as Christian. Earlier in the year, the Queen's funeral demonstrated so much of the historic Christian character of our nation. But is that out of date? For the first time, we have a prime minister who identifies as a proud Hindu. It's a while since we've seen a devout practicing Christian at number 10 Downing Street. So what should we make of all this? Let me know your thoughts in the comments, but I'm really glad to be joined today by two excellent people to think about these issues. Uh, I'm joined today by our head of public policy, Tim Dieppe. Welcome, Tim. Afternoon, Paul. Uh, and also by Dr. Joe Boot, who is many things, but uh, including a faculty member for our Wilberforce Academy and also founder and president of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Uh, he joins us today all the way from Canada. Welcome, Joe. Good afternoon slash good, e good morning, uh, Paul. <laughs> good morning to you. Okay, so Tim, let's start off by looking at these census results. Uh, yeah. What does what do these results uh, say and how should we understand what's happening? So the headline figure is that, um, you know, back uh, 10 years ago, 2011, the census um, showed that 59% uh, said they were Christian. And here we are 10 years on and that has dropped right the way down to 46%. Uh, it was obviously a big, a big drop there, and um, a lot of headlines there. First time that um, we got below fifty percent identifying as Christian um, in that survey, and of course the other side of it was that um, those saying no religion jumped up very sharply, um, up to thirty-seven percent um, from from twenty-five percent. Um, so it kind of a similar, you know, thirteen percent drop in one, twelve percent um, rise in the other, um, going on there. Um, it clearly is a milestone. It is something of a milestone to say, right, now, according to the census, less than 50% of people say they're Christian. Um, that's a milestone. That's a marker. That's something to talk about and, and will be looked at um, in the history of the nation as a, as a significant event um, when it's thought about in that way. On the other hand, is it a drop in real believers? Is it a drop in sort of church attendance? Um, no, not so much. Um, but attendance at the mainstream donations has been declining. Um, and you can, I think you can put that down to them failing to preach the gospel, really. Um, whereas churches that are preaching the gospel are growing and have been growing uh, for some time. And there's also a generational effect going on here. I think that um, roughly 12% of the population turns over between one census and the next 10 years. Um, so and you know, the older people who have died, most of them would have thought of this as a Christian nation and therefore I'm a Christian kind of thinking um so we won't know these figures yet we'll find out when the detail comes out but i imagine quite a lot of it will be a generational shift um ex you know that explains quite a lot of that drop in the christian um thing and also some of the uptick in the non-religious because you know the um the younger people are not getting christian input and are, are not seeing the, the christian culture and influence that 
people even of my generation did in schools with assemblies and all that kind of thing and therefore are not identifying as christian saying we have no religion so i think a lot of that is what's happening um um through this census difference okay that's really helpful tim thanks for that uh, joe any reactions to what tim's just said there yeah i mean i think that's right um of course when people uh, identify as no religion in this um census we need to of course bear in mind that that doesn't mean they don't have a worldview um in a certain sense the the way the question uh, and the questions are framed presuppose the worldview of secularism that some people are religious <coughs> and some people aren't yeah. and that's and that secular humanism uh represents a sort of neutral um non-religious perspective upon reality and of course we we reject that um christians have to reject that there is a a, a world view a world and life view a view of origin meaning morality destiny at work uh, mm. in all those who are identifying now as no religion um of course it represents a, a form of unbelief it's a kind of um it's a form of humanism perhaps we might even call it a form of neo-paganism interestingly in the in the census as well there was an uptick in the number of people identifying as pagan of a sort uh, um uh, occultism of, of of various types which again is people being a bit more self-conscious about their uh, perspective but i think that as tim sort of alluded to really there's not a massive shock here based on the trajectory of the last 20 or 30 years um and the the older population uh who were nominally christian many of them dying off the decline in the mainline churches etc um does really account i think for for most of this but um as tim said it is still highly significant because christian culture um not just christian conversion as perhaps we'll discuss during this program um is important in shaping people's lives and people's view um, of reality and so uh the change is reflected in much of the cultural behavior uh of people today in british society well that's yeah. one interesting thing at this time of year isn't it because lots of people are doing carol services this time of year and True. i i wonder if well they're giving uh, way to the world cup on on, on certain dates okay, now yes. you know? not <laughs> many 18th. people have, have bravely put on a carol service on the 18th which they would have done in any other year apart from yeah. this year yeah that's true that's true uh but i wonder about those those people who identify as christians uh, in some way, but ha don't normally come to church, which is a good number of people in the UK, of course. Um, yeah. Are, is, is a 10% drop in those people going to mean, you know, generally people are less likely to come to a carol service, for example, and therefore... Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, the, the cultural heritage in the nation that makes people think, oh, you know, carol service, that's a lovely traditional thing, I want to go along to that, that's declining. And, and it becomes harder then for Christians to say, come on to carol service, because you know, the, the, the next generation aren't used to going to carol services or haven't had that, you know, so many nativity plays and so many um, school carol services and so many traditional carol services in their upbringing that they sort of harken back to and bring a nice feeling back and say, oh, let's go to a carol service. I think it is going to get harder. I think it is. It does. All this is part of the culture, the carol service um, thing, nativity plays. All of that is part of the Christian culture that we're, we're losing and, and is going away. And therefore, that Christian influence is declining. And it be, it'll become harder, and you know the the number of carols that people know just in in, a, in your average church now is much less than it used to be, um, because you know there, there's much much less of it going on, you know, and 
you know, obviously, you know, we want new songs as well, but, you know, there is this change in culture that's happening and it does mean less people will be interested to go to Calcius. And, the, you know, I don't think churches are wrong to change the date of the Calcius away from the World Cup because they want to invite people in. That's, that's fair enough. But it is just indicative of, of where we are in some ways. Uh, some... Go on, John. I was just going to say it's, it, it is a, a significant point, especially for those who doubt the importance of Christian culture, even with regard to evangelism. Um, especially as somebody, you know, I've been in pastoral ministry on both sides of the Atlantic during the past 25 years. And um, traditionally, uh, you know, Christmas, Easter were two wonderful opportunities for evangelism mm -hmm. uh, because they, they still punctuated the year for most people with a particular form of religious significance. They were moments to pause and reflect and think through what is most important, what's most significant. They were natural opportunities to easily invite people to come and see, come and hear. And as that, um, as that declines, um, and as we see, I mean, even in the schools, uh, less Christian acts of worship, uh, even though I believe, unless I'm mistaken and out of date in the UK, uh, you know, a, a Christian act of worship is still required. But yeah. as these things steadily decline um and awareness of even the 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 historical significance amongst young, younger people today of what christmas is even celebrating what easter is actually about the opportunity becomes more difficult becomes more difficult you're starting that much further back in the process of evangelism and that is one of the implications of de-christianization evangelism becomes um uh, I think uh, you're going from instead of sort of maybe seven out of ten, uh, you're starting at zero increasingly with people in terms of awareness. Can there um, be an advantage though, Joe? Because you know people, you know, can think oh, I'm already a Christian or have some kind of almost inoculation against real Christianity because they've had a sort of fake Christianity of a of a, just a merely cultural nominal kind that that turns them off Christianity. Can it be easier in some ways to start from? you know a, a you know no knowledge of christianity and therefore nothing to sort of prejudice them against it um in general i would say no um and right. i think the history of missions work kind of bears that out that if you go into um a, a, a heavily buddhist region or a heavily hindu region or a heavily islamic region it can take decades to mm, um, see churches um actually uh, established um uh, whereas actually in the uk because there's a certain amount of cultural memory of these things people are often one step closer in their awareness i mean i don't we have to be careful about how much stock we put in um studies and research in this area because in the end conversion um being transformed the, the new the new birth is is the work of the holy spirit but as we do look at research within missiology we do see that people need multiple exposures to the Christian worldview, to the reality of the gospel before they typically come through to what we would call a conversion experience yeah. and then an, a willingness to uh, be in the life of the church. Of course, when you're dealing with complete ignorance of, of, of the gospel, there is a certain kind of opportunity there that you've rightly highlighted where no, there's, there's no baggage. Yeah. Um, but you're also starting so far back that... Uh, 
And, and this is, of course, why you know, centuries were involved in, in the life of the early church to start to see the beginnings of the, of the emergence of, of Christian culture, um, because it's a long road from um, radical a humanistic or pagan perspective on reality to a, to a Christian view of the world. We've got some wonderful comments and questions going in. Thank you, everyone, for sending those in. Sarah, a while ago, had this comment question. People have a worldview, but it's often uh, so often not conscious and very mixed up. How do we get this across to folks in conversation? They often will say, but I don't believe in anything. And I also um, would add to that um, another situation I saw recently where someone had sent out a, a tract uh, about, uh, do you want Christ to be your king or are you going to make yourself king and this this sort of thing and someone came back to the minister and said yeah i, I just want to be king uh listen paul i'd be totally tempted to say to that person do you really believe that you don't believe in anything <laughs> so, yeah so that's your response uh, joe joe what would you say to this sort of thing someone who thinks they don't believe in anything well uh, tim's response isn't as humorous as it might first sound i think asking people questions in the task of apologetics and evangelism is the is is absolutely vital and the, the the questioner is right that very often you're dealing with people who have an unconscious it's it's not um it's not something they've necessarily thought through in detail but they have actually accepted a certain set of assumptions and presuppositions about the world about life uh, about origin about meaning there will always be a divinity concept at work when you look at the history of human thought um, that is a, a, um, what I mean by a divinity concept or a, a divine per se is a belief in something that is a, a non-dependent reality, something on which everything else depends. And people have made that, um, you go back to the ancient world, uh, number with, with uh, world number, number uh, a world number theory or number world theory. Uh, people have thought it to be matter and energy or um, reason. Um, planetary bodies, gods, um, but uh, everybody believes in something on which everything else depends, even if that is only some vague idea of some eternal concept of matter and energy. And so um, actually asking people questions so that they become more self-conscious about their religious presuppositions is actually really important. And of course, that is part of the task of Christian apologetics. For those who might be interested, I have written a couple of books on that. And um, one of them is called Why I Still Believe. And in that, I, I, I look at some of the ways in which we can open people up about those most fundamental assumptions in a conversational way. Yeah. Thanks, Amir, is also Tim's recent book, uh, <laughs> Questions to Ask Your Muslim Friends. Again, asking these questions, trying to get to the root of what people believe and why. I remember at university doing those sort of worldview surveys were quite popular at the time. and. Um, they, they did lead to good conversations about what what was ultimate for people mm. um so so that is a helpful thing but obviously if we're coming from further away and we've got more distance to travel that's going to be a um a tricky thing um i'm just wondering if another part in this census issue is um it's it's really not cool to be christian in the eyes of sort of the bbc and uh, the institutions of, of society it's very cool to be kind of a a pagan, a, a witch, um, you know, they're, they're the kind of thing, they're the kind of stories that get promoted and it's always in this interesting, uh, all the times saying, oh, look, isn't it interesting, these polyamorous people kind of shaping a new kind of way of being, you know, these sorts of things. It's really not cool to be Christians and you are labeled quite quickly as a bigot if you believe in uh, in 
the full full doctrine of Christianity. Um, could some of this drop, not just be this turnover, but also institution-led uh, and the kind of ways that the the media has an impact on these things? I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think it could be. Um, I, I, mean, I, I tend to think it's probably largely a generational thing, Paul, to be honest, at the, at the bottom line. But I think it is quite striking that even though what you're saying about there's kind of almost a price to pay for identifying as Christian um, in this country now, it's, it's, it's kind of scorned and mocked. Um, whereas in, in former generations, it would have been respected as they were Christian and now it's sort of scorned and mocked. You still got 46% of the population saying, well, actually I'm a Christian. And that is still the largest um, group of any group by a long, long way when the next group is non-religious at 37%. Um, so this is this is interesting in itself, and that's perhaps a bit of surprise that so many people are still willing to say I'm a Christian. And I think it is that is still something about our cultural heritage, the Christian heritage of the nation, sort of um, still shining through there, with people still saying, "Well, I think we're in a Christian nation, and I go to church occasionally, or sometimes, or this is the religion that I put down if asked the question." Um, and so that's still there. And I expect we'll, you know, unless things change, we'll see some further decline in it um, in the next few sentences. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how things develop. Yeah. Our chief executive, Andrea, wrote in The Critic earlier this week along yeah. those lines. Didn't she? 46%. What a what a great opportunity that is. I mean, 46% yeah. aren't going to church, but that is that is a big opportunity for us. Um, people who in yes. some way don't identify as Christians and who we should be trying to reach. Uh, Joe, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that is a significant point and um, one that um, we shouldn't overlook. The importance of because um, it do, cultures do not need um, vast majorities. Um, nations don't need vast majorities to um, of, to be of a particular persuasion to turn a culture, a society in a particular direction. I mean, a good example of that is the uh, radical progressive movement. If you think about the sort of extension we're experiencing today of the sexual revolution in the areas of human identity and human sexuality um, and the radical nature of that kind of, it's a religious cult of a sort really. Um, and it's demand that everybody celebrate uh, the, the redefinition of reality. That's a very, very small percentage of the population, very small percentage of the population that has managed to turn um, mm. public life, education, law, um, political reality, increasingly social reality. Um, and so the notion that we need sort of 70, 80% Christians before we can talk about being a Christian nation or before we've got any chance of seeing a certain degree of cultural transformation just simply isn't true. Um, and that's been true throughout history. Um, if you've got seven to 10% of a, a committed, truly committed, faithful uh, remnant in a nation, uh, you can you can change the nation in terms of the uh, the reality of the gospel. So I think that's I do think that's very significant, and I think that there is, given I don't know exactly, you guys will probably know right now what the percentages of what we might call regular church goers out of that um, forty seven percent. Maybe but, six percent, I think. Too. Yeah. So so there's forty. You know, the vast majority of those identifying as Christians aren't regular in the life of the church and therefore not being fed, nurtured, developed yeah. in terms of the Christian life. What an opportunity to reach that 40% there yeah. um, that uh, of those identifying that way who really aren't living out 
consistently what they profess to believe. Yeah. Well, you just on to what I want to talk about next anyway, because we've got the United Kingdom. It's formerly a Christian nation. The uh, England has an established church uh, monarchy with King Charles as uh, the Church of England's supreme governor. There are obviously debates about how appropriate it is to have a state church and these sorts of things. Uh, but is it right or even possible for a nation to be Christian? That's another question people have. I was wondering, Joe, if you could talk about that. Well, it's um, it's certainly right um, uh, to, to, to talk shouldn't about... We, shouldn't we just be secular, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, shouldn't we just be Muslim, um, Hindu, uh, Marxist? Uh, you know, nations are, are characterized by the dominance of the of the religious worldview um within within that culture in the same way that um a a, a church can be ironically today uh, tim pointed out earlier talking about the mainline churches a, a church can actually be um, as a sphere of authority a, a christian or actually not christian a family can be christian or not christian um and a nation can be christian or not Christian, uh, and it doesn't require. And I think one of sometimes one of the myths that is out there that people wrestle with here is that unless everybody within the nation is a genuine believer and is born again in evangelical terms, um, the the idea of a Christian nation is inherently impossible. But um, that's clearly absurd. When you look at um, Scripture, you see the nation of Israel, uh, God's people with uh, a constitution given to them by God himself. And um, even in that nation, uh, which was, of course, a, a, a mixed multitude when they left Egypt of Egyptians, Hebrews, and they collected others along the way. It was a covenant people, uh, not, a, not primarily an ethnic people. Um, they were marked by varying degrees of obedience and disobedience, apostasy, unbelief, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, and so on. Um, and to be part of the people of Israel, um, although you had to recognize that there was one law, one rule of law for the stranger, the alien and the, and the resident, uh, the stranger did not need to take sacrifices to the temple and worship Yahweh. Um, but it was still a believing nation. And um, you could take that illustration. You could look, as I said, a, a, a business. You could look at a family. You can look at a church. Not everybody in a Christian family is necessarily born again. Not everybody in a Christian church is necessarily born again. So, yes, we can legitimately talk about a Christian nation uh, when there is a desire within the public life of a society, within that sphere of authority of, uh, of the, the nation state, to serve God, to recognize a higher law, to recognize authority in law that transcends man's idea or man's social contract um, and however weak the expression of the reality of god's kingdom and submission to the lord jesus christ may be uh, in that situation just as it can be weak in a family or in a given church um, we can still talk about the kingdom of god the reality of the kingdom of god then being manifest uh, in the nation and therefore we can talk about being a christian rather than an islamic or a marxist or a or a hindu uh, nation, um, you know, we there's a, there a difference here, though, Joe, isn't there? Because, yeah, I'm just thinking because an Islamic nation, 
this, this is yeah, it's interesting analogy or parallel, isn't it? You know, people point to nations say they're Islamic nations. So why not put, put another station and say it's a Christian nation? But and, and that's a fair point. But on the other hand, you know, Islam does not have separation of church and state or of religion and state, whereas Christianity does. And so a Christian nation would not be religious in the same way that Islamic one would be. Well, you agree with that, I assume, Joe. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, you're right to say that um, Islam has a totalitarian concept of society and the state, and, and it sees yeah. no, it doesn't really have a church. So again, one of the no, problems exactly. with looking at Islam is that Christians will often think of Islam as um, basically like Christianity, but slightly different in its beliefs about God. And, you know, they go to, uh, you know, public worship as well. And, but actually, um, the, the notion of Sabbath rest, worship, um, coming together uh, around some form of unity around the Lord's table, um, that's not what the mosque is about. That's not what Islam fundamentally is about. So you're right, it's a, it's a politico community and it's about fundamentally the the realization of sharia law um yeah. in society um but um the separation of church and state which has to do with the separation of jurisdictions of which by the way even in the church of england paul you mentioned the you know the situation in the uk with a with a state church 39 articles make clear that the king is titular head figurehead of the church of england has no authority to act as priest he can't minister the sacraments or preach the word of god um, and so there is a there is a still there a, a, a distinct separation of the jurisdiction and sphere of authority of the civil authority, the civil magistrate and the priesthood, the, the, the life yeah. of the church. But even when we talk about a jurisdictional, which we should, Tim's absolutely right, um, what we might call a sphere sovereignty that uh, historically Christian nations have recognized, separation of church and state doesn't mean separation of God and the state. It doesn't mean a separation of Christ and his lordship from the state. Um, yeah. And so what does it mean to have a political, not necessarily an ecclesiastical confession? Mm. Um, and those are distinctive. What we wouldn't be saying here is for, to be a Christian nation, it needs to decide whether it's Baptist, Presbyterian, Church of England, Roman Catholic, uh, and so mm. on. But rather, I think we could talk, yeah. and this is perhaps where, Paul, we can we could talk about how we can improve on the past as we think about what it means to be a Christian nation is we don't need to talk about the imposition of one particular church's distinctive characteristics, one particular no. denomination's characteristics, yeah. but a mere Christendom of submission to Christ, recognition the, of the authority of his word for yes. the life of the state. Because no individual, the state is just a differentiated public, no individual yeah. who then functions in the life of the state as an MP or as a judge or whatever aspect of the state they're serving in can leave their fundamental religious convictions at the door where they serve in that capacity. They still have to serve Christ if they're Christian. And so yeah. that would be the nature of a truly Christian nation. Yeah. So, I mean, the interesting point here, Paul, is that um, obviously the secularists, the humanists are jumping all over these figures and saying, Hey, you know, this is time to end any Christian privileges or any Christian Christian identity of the nation and you know we're obviously not a Christian nation anymore and less than 50% now identify as Christian therefore we're not a Christian nation and you know and, and even lobbying to change coronation service um, and all of this kind of thing and that kind of pressure is inevitable and that, that will come and it's understandable and you know but it was only in 2016 was it that David Cameron said we're a Christian nation as Prime Minister 
and a few years afterwards that the then um, education secretary said we we're a Christian nation as well. And and here we now have, you know, it, it has been a shift, hasn't it? You know, and, and Sunak, not as prime minister, but before that has said we're a secular nation, um, himself mm-hmm. being Hindu. And, you know, obviously the secularists are sort of claiming this ground now. And it, it seems like, you know, we certainly were a Christian nation in terms of self-understanding and self-identity and the culture and the heritage and the, all those coronation oaths um, and services, all of the civic services, state funerals, state weddings, um, you know, state events of, of significance are all steeply Christian. There's, there's still prayers before Parliament every day. You know, there's so many Christian aspects to it and still, as Joe said, a requirement for a Christian act of worship sort of, you know, observed in abeyance too often and not enforced. Um, but, you know, that strong Christian heritage is still there, but we are moving away from it, aren't we? We're jettisoning it and and to our peril, sadly. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the extent to which we're seeing the, all the fallout and damage from the sexual revolution and the breakdown of family is absolutely yeah. massive. And people are not recognising that is that the root of so many of our problems in society now. And, and the, the breakdown of family and sexual ethics comes from abandoning Christian standards of ethics, which we all mm-hmm. used to hold to in this nation not very long ago. You know, there's an interesting factor there too, Tim, um, that you've reminded me of, is that um, with the Queen's funeral, yeah, I think it was close to 4 billion people around the world um, yeah. watched that funeral. Um, and both of the services were profoundly moving, I thought, especially the second one um at Windsor and um there was a very interesting article in the in the newspapers that week I think it was in the Telegraph and it the headline was something along the lines of the the Britain is longing for orthodox Christianity right uh the the sheer interest in observing that recognizing uh the Queen's life her value people you know the media talked a lot about her values what they didn't want to discuss was the for the most part, it came up occasionally, um, was the root of those values that made her such an admired and frankly yeah. loved monarch that would have such a, a, an outpouring of grief at her loss. And of course, there was a sense also it was recognized in this article that um, people were, the mourning was over more than just the, the loss of the queen as an, as an elderly woman, um, but the loss of what she represented, the loss of the world the culture mm. that she represented. It's the end of an era. That's that right. the end, as the end of an era, exactly. And I think that there's mm. something to be said there as well, that uh, these secularists can kind of, you know, jump up and down and rejoice as much as they want. But but what what person could get 4 billion people tuned into a to Christian services where, frankly, with the readings and the messages, it was an afternoon of the gospel being proclaimed um, mm. within the context, interestingly, of state... It was it was state liturgy. Um, mm. It was the it was the state. It was a state funeral. It's the state's recognition of mm. its constitutional character. Um, mm. And so, you know, the notion that um, you know, our, because because as you've said, so much of the faith is embedded in every aspect of uh, the life of our culture and our constitutional life. That the notion that we're simply post-Christian and that you can just get rid of all of that with one sweep of the the secular humanist lobbying hands um, is simply uh, unrealistic. And um, I don't think their lobbying is going to have any impact on the character of the coronation um, next year. Um, uh, but 
it doesn't change the reality of of the of the trajectory of the nation that you've pointed out that unless it's reversed yeah. the pressures will grow more and more and unless we tap into especially the churches that are recognized you know within the main line especially the anglican churches what an opportunity missed what an opportunity missed as a church to engage with the the, the society british society the british community the british public around what happened with regard to the queen it was her orthodox christian confession that made her the woman that she was that, uh, admired and loved as she was and um, that's what we're losing when we lose the christian gospel and with it christian culture yeah one of the things i was hoping to get onto, but we're probably running out of time is just the character of a christian state and kind of what it feels like to be in a christian <clears throat> nation. and uh, going back to that funeral um not just the services, but as they processed from Buckingham Palace to uh, to the, uh, to Parliament and then to Westminster Abbey, go past, you go down the Mall and then past the Horse Guards Parade, and you see these absolutely wonderful, beautiful buildings uh, that were were made by Christians or in a Christian culture at least, um, and the just even the grandeur of it and the the beauty of those things, I think, even speaks of uh, of a of a society that cares not just about the function of what we do, the function of a building, uh, the function of uh, how we use our um, our time and our efforts, but about something bigger than just the mechanics of it, about the beauty of a building, about uh, a, a, an abbey that points to God in some way and looks up, not just at our own arc activity, but looks to God um, as our help, as as the um as our help in ages past if you like um that has more than just our atheistic secular materialistic kind of world uh, that we so often live in um or that our our society cherishes it points up it looks at the things bigger than itself not that not that other cultures wouldn't appreciate beauty though paul i mean yeah beauty is not a distinctive of a christian no nation. no no but but you know but what do you have in architecture when we start losing our christianity or you know there, there is a marked shift when you when you look at sort of brutalism or something like this and, and what True. that says about yeah uh, our culture so you know um obviously other cultures do value value beauty but there's something about the way that a, a building points up to god even um that and or isn't purely uh for the purpose of um, you know being a yeah. shopping mall or something like this um that's yeah. that says something about a culture and and its uh, and its approach to beauty and these sorts of things uh anyway we can't really get into that but <laughs> um but i do want to go to ask you know how do we get to a christian nation then um you know or a more more thoroughly christian nation i mean you've possibly pointed a little bit at this already joe but um you know is it just about making the most of these sorts of opportunities being bolder as a church uh should we be evangelizing extra hard concentrating on that what, what what's the approach do you think to, to to making jesus at the heart of society again and and seeing seeing the kind of good society we want to see well obviously that's a huge huge question would be worthy of a of, of a show in itself i'm sure tim's got reflections on that too um i think that um you've actually sort of alluded a little bit to it already in your comments about um about beauty and the way the way uh, religious commitment fundamental worldview affects every aspect of life not just one aspect of it um you know when we think even about our current prime minister a very dignified and respectable man rishi sunak who professes 
Hinduism. Um, by the grace of God, though, he was nurtured and uh, suckled, not at the breast of Lashmi, some Hindu demon goddess, but in Christian institutions. Um, in uh, Winchester College at uh, the University of Oxford, of course, he's in his 40s now, so this would have been 25, 30 years ago. Uh, Stanford University in California, and has been shaped and molded by the Christian constitutional character <coughs> of the nation, which means you don't hear Rishi Sunak pushing for a Hindu social order rooted in the caste system, for example, which emerged from the body of Brahma in Hindu um, mythology, Brahma being ultimate uh, reality. So I think the key to um, a Christian nation, which of course is not the same as nationalism, that's, a, that, that's to do with deifying the nation, but, but a, a truly biblical nationhood is of course has to be rooted first in the, the faithful preaching of the gospel. Evangelism is, abs is absolutely vital. Personal mm. evangelism is absolutely vital. Personal evangelism though is one aspect of what we might call evangelization. And I think that what we really need to recover in the West is a vision of Christian evangelization, not just uh, evangelism, central and important as evangelism is. And evangelization means that we're applying a distinctly Christian view of reality to every area of life. Um, it means the reestablishment of Christian institutions. I mean, in part, to answer your question, you would have to say, well, how was it done in the past? And in the early church, in the face of the pagan colossus of the ancient world, Christians started Christian institutions, hospitals, schools, uh, care homes for the elderly. They applied their faith. They externalized the Christian world and life. They externalized the gospel. They picked up the abandoned children uh, under the aqueducts of, of Rome, the botched abortions, the, the infanticide of the pagan world. They adopted these children into their, their families. Um, they rescued prostitutes. Um, uh, Theodora, married to Justinian, uh, the famous Justinian Code, the first codification there that where we see in Roman law, where we see the influence of Christianity, um, was because a woman was rescued, uh, abandoned as a child, rescued from prostitution by Christian presbyters, ended up marrying a general called Justinian who becomes emperor of Rome. And so it's the application it's the it's the recognition that the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and his total word of, of reconciliation, the reconciliation of all things to God. We've been given that ministry of reconciliation as his co-workers. And therefore, it's about the application of the fullness of the gospel to each area of life, applying that in our families, in our vocations, our businesses and our institutions, as well as sharing the gospel with our neighbors. And it's going to be all of the above, I think, if we're to recover uh, an idea of a Christian society, a Christian nation, and a Christian culture capable of shaping a man like a Rishi Sunak um, uh, to such a degree that, um, you know, without being disrespectful, I think his Hinduism is so watered down by the Christianization of the society in which he lives that um, uh, his Hinduism is not a threat to the British state. Hmm. I, would, I would just um, add... Joe, just I want to build on your comment earlier about the minority that was LGBT that and the change that they've affected on the culture, which mm -hmm. is absolutely massive. You know, they redefined marriage, redefined the family, um, got various legal changes, got the government to allow people to legally change their gender. Um, and it looks like if we get a Labour government, uh, Keir Starmer has said he'll force people to use their acquired pronouns. 
you know, this is this is a small minority, like you said, you know, one or two percent of the population at most, um, who, you know, what have they done? They've been unashamed and unapologetic about what they believe and what they want to do. And and everyone has just backed down and said, yes, 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 um, to that. And you know, Christians, meanwhile, look like the culture culture perceives that Christians are weak and apologetic and a bit ashamed of what they believe and a bit unconfident, don't really know what they believe, not really sure about it either, and a bit wishy-washy. And if we had a you know significant group um, movement of Christians that were unashamed, unapologetic, confident, bold, this is how it should be. We're not going to back down on this. This is what we want to do. Um, you know, I, you know, it's amazing what change could happen. I think that's a brilliant point. Brilliant point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's exactly what we want to <laughs> want to encourage people to do at Christian Concern. I'm sure also Ezra Institute. Uh, we're about equipping Christians to be like that. And that's why the Christian Legal Center exists in, in many respects. Um, you know, yeah. the work we do protecting Christians isn't just for the sake of those Christians. It's so that they can shine the light of Jesus into society and, uh, and bring that uh, transformation that people need to see and bring the gospel to people, both in the sense of salvation, but also the Lordship of Christ and what it means for their lives. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that is very much what we're about, and uh, would encourage everyone there who's watching, listening, uh, to to join us as we do that. If you don't already, we want you to be courageous. We want you to be uh, doing, you know, obeying God's calling, whether that is simply evangelizing at work, whether it's starting a Christian school, whether it's um, shaping uh, your church in in helpful ways that will honour Jesus Christ more, uh, whether it's uh, growing, you know, growing your family and um, and helping them uh, follow Christ. There are so many ways uh, that this can happen. Thank you, Chuck, for that comment. Thank God for the Christian Legal Center. God bless you. Well, God bless you too, uh, Chuck. So uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I wanted to point out one opportunity to do some of those things. Uh, we've just launched a, a website tool uh, earlier on this week um, that allows you to uh, email uh, or contact Church of England bishops. They're going to meet as of next Monday to have a sort of some final discussions uh, about what they're suggesting the church does on same-sex marriage. Now, uh, if you're not a Church of England person, that might seem like it's not your uh, not your job to to talk to a bishop about it. But it is actually quite important uh, whether you're in England, whether you're at the Church of England church or not, um, to to see if you can uh, encourage a bishop to stand firm for the truth. Uh, the Church of England is the most sort of significant church in in the nation in terms of uh, its impact on parliament and impact on other churches um and and to uh for the church of england to give up uh, completely on same-sex marriage and sexual immorality would be a real uh, a real win for the lgbt side and it would be a real loss uh for christians uh you'd find yourself worse protected by law uh, probably because people would be able to paint orthodox christians more easily as extreme and so on. It's already happening, but it would almost certainly get worse if this were to happen. So I'd love you to go to that link uh, to go and email, write to a bishop and say uh, say some things to them about what scripture says, uh, about what their calling is as a bishop to uphold the teaching of the church, the, up, uh, the uphold the teaching of scripture and to, uh, to stand for marriage, to stand for sexual purity. So I'd love you to do that. Um, there, I assume the link is in the comments there. Um, I can't see it at the moment because I'm not on that screen. Uh, but but please do involve yourself in that and getting in yeah. contact with us. Um, 
and we will see you next week for a Christmas special of Round the Table. Thank you so much, Joe and Tim, for joining us. Um, and we'll see you very soon. Uh, goodbye. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for having us.